Welcome to episode 329. Are you at that age where you're just kind of waiting to get a disease? What will it be? Cancer? Diabetes? Parkinson's? Ulcerative colitis? It's actually really sad that in the modern world we all expect to become unwell, despite the enormous amount of data about what we could be doing to heal from it and even prevent it in the first place. In this episode, we talk about some of the things that devastate your hormones and your gut health and what you can do from a diet and nutrition perspective to buy yourself plenty of time before these problems rear their ugly head. We go into bacterial colonies in the microbiome and the metabolites that they produce. We talk about hormones and neurotransmitters and how loneliness, a lack of community, and putting old people in homes can cause a downturn in the ability of your immune system to do its job. Lots of good nutritional microbiome stuff in this episode. So, let's begin. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? I hope you're having a fantastic day and that if you're not, that this podcast is going to put that pep in your step that you really need. That little bit of positive vibe, healthy energy to get you over the hurdle that's in front of you right in this current moment. In 2024, it's my mission to coach 500 people to get control of their sugar cravings and sugar binges so they can stop yo-yo dieting, stop obsessing about food and finally create a body that they feel confident being in. And if that's the hurdle that's in front of you, feel free to scroll to the show notes and reach out so we can have a conversation to figure out if we can help you or not. And if I'm the right person to guide you on that journey. Show notes, scroll down there, click link, conversation, all that jazz. Okay, here with me in the podcast studio, we have a best-selling author, Dr. Monisha Benoit. And she's actually one of the very few quintuple board certified physicians in the US. What I love about Monisha is the way she uses all the good parts of multiple modalities and mashes them all together. She combines ancient healing wisdom with mind-body science to naturally biohack the human body through her expertise as a cytopathologist, functional culinary medicine specialist, and as an integrative medical doctor. Known as the well-being doctor, Dr. Benoit has diagnosed over 1 million cancer cases, runs health programs, and leads wellness workshops and retreats all over the world. And so without further ado, Monisha, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Maddie. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad we were finally able to connect for your podcast after um, how we did originally meet, which was, <laughs> if you want to share the story, it's a, you never know who you're going to meet these days online. <laughs> totally. So for those of us that are sort of self-employed or running our own businesses online, there's all of these different apps that you know, sort of help you feel like you're part of a community and that you're not alone in the world. And one of those is called Focusmate, which is like a co-working app. And you get connected with literally anybody in the world every 50 minutes to spend another 50 minutes working together on whatever you want to work on. And one of those people that I was connected with on that app was Manisha. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't know how many hours you've put on Focusmate, but I've definitely uh, been doing a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I find it incredible. I find it most useful for when I have deadlines. And whether that's university related or whether that's client related or whatever it is, if there's like an impending deadline, Focusmate is where I go to tune out everything else. I use it mostly for um, doing my patient notes, actually, which yeah, right. I've, I've definitely gotten quicker at, you know, going from a one fifty minute session with one patient. Now I can do like about four or five. So shows progress. 
Totally. <laughs> so I'm always curious about how conventional mainstream drug-trained MDs opened up their world to alternative medical strategies. And although I'm not an MD, I worked in hospitals as a scientist, and I went on a journey that led me to open myself up to other modalities. So I would love to hear about the sort of the moments or the epiphanies in your medical journey that led to you being open to other strategies outside of, say, the clinical hospital setting. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I don't want to be a drug dealer. You know, since you you said the the drug train, I consider myself more of a fruit and veggie dealer. So I like that. (laughs) Really, you know, it comes from over a decade or longer of really looking at the human body on a cellular level as a formally trained pathologist. So I'm trained in anatomic pathology, which is the study of human disease on a tissue level, so your organs, your tissues. I'm trained in clinical pathology, which is how we study humans on uh, looking at body fluids. So your blood tests, urine tests, plasma, that kind of stuff. Body fluids like um, pleural fluid, ascites fluid. And then I'm also trained in cytopathology, which is looking at the individual single cells under the microscope to see how they turn from normal healthy cells to what I call, in simple terms, angry cells. That's the progression I see. And they get angrier and angrier as they become more dysplastic or abnormal or precancerous to really bad cancers, right? So after spending so many years doing that and looking at all different parts of the body and sitting in um, what we do in the U.S. is tumor boards. At this point, probably every other day where the pathologist, the surgeon, the oncologist, the radiologist all come together and they look at what is this person's tumor? Are we going to cut it out? Are we going to radiate it? Are we going to chemo it? What are we going to do to it? So you would think that worked. But what I was seeing was that these patients would come back years later with a different tumor, or maybe even a recurrence of the same one. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, we're missing something, definitely. Like, yeah, the treatment worked, but why is the person continuing to develop something, right? And that comes back at looking at cellular health. And if an individual doesn't have the knowledge or aware how of how to really take care of their body, because guess what? We haven't been trained in how to take care of our body. You know, we've been trained in our careers and stuff, but we really haven't been trained in how to really optimize the function of our body. And we continue to have our lifestyle choices that are putting us in a place where we will progress in disease. We're kind of missing the boat in one supporting patients, but also making for a healthier, happier planet, right? So That was kind of my turning point because I'm like, we can definitely do more. It just didn't feel right to me that we just stopped there and we waited for the next thing to happen when we know that 95% of cancers and almost most diseases are lifestyle and preventable, like only less than 5% are genetics. So like if I were to tell somebody, I'd be like, Listen, genetics is one thing, but it's your lifestyle that's going to actually influence whether that genetics is going to come to play. Yeah, that's one of the things that I realized as well was that, you know, I guess probably you too, we were educated in this idea of DNA and the DNA was basically prescriptive. It's like whatever we can read in the DNA, 
is your fate. And that was how sort of the science medical establishment operated for a long time, which is, you know, fair enough, because that's, that was the limitation of their understanding at the time. But then this idea, and I sort of went into a, I worked for a company that worked on nutritional epigenetics. And yeah, this idea that, oh, actually, we could all have cancer genes, and we do. But it's about how you engage with those cells and with the DNA in order to figure out what is switched on and what is switched off and how often that happens. And obviously, when we're in a world where we're just constantly filling our body with toxins and food that isn't real food, you know, it's sort of manufactured stuff that masquerades as food with all of these different chemicals, plus the pesticides on real food, and then all of the fragrances in your house and just layer and layer and layer and layer of thing in our world that just it switches on these defensive genes that go out of control because the body isn't used to processing these chemicals. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And yesterday, no, two days ago was a uh, specific holiday here in the US, which is where we actually start in a child's journey of getting them exposed to all these chemicals. It was Halloween. Uh, And if you look at the ingredients in the candy that is supplied to children as young as two years old, And they are eating that for years and, you know, all through their childhood, their teens. And then they go into the adult foods are also, you know, frozen meals with preservatives and all this stuff. People aren't eating real food. Like their body hasn't even been exposed to the nutrients that it needs to be healthy. So it's no wonder that people are developing illnesses. I mean, my youngest breast cancer patient is 18. Sad. Genetics completely normal. That was years of just eating the standard American diet and lots and lots of chemical-laden beauty products. Because teens here start at a very young age, you know, 10, 11 years old, and they're putting all these chemicals in our skin as the biggest organ, right? So they're absorbing all these bath bombs and lotions and creams, which are not natural. Our body doesn't know what to do with them. And at the end of the day, what happens? Our cells get angry. They get damaged. Damaged cells create damaged DNA, which eventually creates some kind of either you can think of it as a functional thing where you get symptoms and they're not functioning the way they should. And the worst of them all is dysplasia and cancer. Yeah, it's so sad that people are getting these things so young. And it's interesting too, over the course of my interest in health and wellness and career, I guess, even I've seen diseases go from elderly onset or adult onset to now just being a blanket statement of, oh, anybody can get this, even if you're five. Mm -hmm. And I often get asked the question, and maybe you have a different answer, but the question is, do you think that these diseases have always been prevalent and it's just science that has allowed us to identify these diseases. I get asked that all the time. Is modern technology just finding things that was always there? Well, so let's take it from a perspective of breast cancer, right? So breast cancer, one in eight women end up with breast cancer. And yes, our technology is better for detecting it because we're able to detect it through mammograms and other technology, and we're able to detect smaller and smaller tumors. But does that equate to why we are seeing more of it? I can't say that that's 100% right. You know, I think it's a combination. We do, Yes, we have better technology to detect it. People have more awareness around these things, especially if they've had a family member with it. But at the same time, we are also living in a world that is more chemical laden than ever. 
from our food supply to our product supply to our household bed sheets, towels, sofa, like everything for the ease of convenience. We live in a very convenient world, but that convenient world has come with its own problems. Yeah. I think there's another part too that is a really uncomfortable truth that people don't like to hear, which is that previously medicine wasn't around to save people from themselves. And so these diseases and illnesses and genetic code that aren't necessarily that strong would not have survived. And so we're in this situation where we're seeing so much disease because diseases that would otherwise kill people are now not killing people. And we've got really unwell people staying alive, which is a great thing. You know, people should be allowed to be alive. But my point is that they're then able to procreate. And so we've got multiple gene pools that are really damaged, then procreating and weakening the next generation, which if we follow natural selection and evolution and, you know, optimization of the human, that's kind of the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The things that a mother does will affect the child in the womb, you know, and this is generations and generations, not just a physical assault on the cells, but also the mental stress, you know, so all these different things are coming in in combination into why are we seeing a population that might have a longer lifespan and modern technology has made that longer lifespan, but people are not healthier. Yeah, not at all. I mean, It is very common here that the regular pattern of, okay, as you age, you will end up in a nursing home to live out the rest of your days. I don't know when that became the norm, but why should we be like, okay, we get, we turn 70 and we we have to move into a nursing home. That should not be the norm. I mean, in other countries, and you know, if you think about the blue zones and places where people are, are still living and have their community and are still physically mobile and doing the things that they need to do, what is different there? Yeah, absolutely. And it's sad, like, because a lot of, I don't know if anybody is listening, has been into a nursing home or been in any places like that. But yeah, they're very sad places. And and it's almost like people just go to waste away and get forgotten about. And, And I think Western culture, particularly Australia, England, the US, you know, we have a very interesting relationship with our elderly and probably a really sad relationship. Other cultures are very much, you know, the family supports the elderly people or they live with them or whatever it might be. But for us Westerners that have got all this privilege and access to, you know, I'm going to live my best life for me. It's very anti-family and anti-community and anti-support. So as soon as somebody's a bit of a burden on your life, you're just like, ah, we'll just put them out the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll just put them into a nursing home and visit them once every three months. I'll text them. That'll, that'll alleviate me of my guilt for not showing up. And I think that that's a part of that as well. Yeah, it is a, um, a sad reality. I think the future of what we're seeing is a very, you know, I think our next pandemic is a loneliness pandemic because everybody's just kind of for sure. out for themselves. And we need to bring that human connection back. You know, we need to bring that community aspect back. I think people will heal in communities. You know, a reason I do retreats as a, you know, you bring the community of like-minded people together because together is what we're going to be able to do to make a better, healthier, happier world, um, not divided. That That's never worked for anybody. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because we touched on this beforehand about the idea of retreats and in-person community. And, and, you know, obviously we met on Focusmate, which is like another attempt 
to create some type of community. But after pandemic and sort of living by myself for a few years and leaving the day job at the hospital where I saw, you know, 50 to 100 people a day that I knew, and then working in my own self-employed environment, even at this stage of life, I would consider myself a part of that loneliness pandemic that's like really, really affected me, but I didn't really know until it was sort of really, really dark. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, th- I totally think it's already happening and irrelevant of the stage of life because social media, the internet gives us the illusion of connection, but the physical human body doesn't have the same sensations in front of a screen that it does when it's in front of a human. Yes, 100%. We thrive on human connection. So if you are not thriving, take a look at your community and and where you can maybe find that community support because it's there if you look for it. Yeah, there's so many fantastic groups out there. And I think social anxiety has increased for a lot of people too, just through lack of practice, like just through lack of going into the world. And so you sort of, you know, you don't use it, you lose it, you know? Well, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in a generation where we actually talked to people, you know, (laughs) even if it was on a phone where, you know, you ring up the phone and you talk to people into the night, you know, and now it's become our text culture. So when you actually do see the person in person, the communication skills are lacking. So we've definitely, once again, due to technology and convenience, we are losing our basic human skills. Yeah. I'm curious on this note of disconnection and community and loneliness, going back into the biology, like how does that affect the human vessel? Like how does it affect the physical being of a human health-wise and what deteriorates and what do we see in the cells and in the blood as a consequence of disconnection and loneliness and you know, being away from other people? Yeah. So from a scientific perspective, I would say that that could definitely influence your immune system, right? So a couple of things are going on here. Usually when I work with patients who tell me that, you know, they might not prepare their meals or something because they live alone, right? So one, they live alone and they don't think they have self-worth to take care of themselves. But at the same time now, because they're not eating to the best of their ability, because one, they're lonely. I mean, I have some patients, uh, elderly ones who are like, they have lunch meetings, but that's only like once a week when they might go and meet their friends and they have like a proper meal. But for themselves, they don't take care of it. Now I'm thinking of, okay, if you're not eating proper meals, your gut health, which is your gut is the root of all health conditions as we age, right? So we definitely want to optimize gut health. But the other thing people don't realize is your immune system. A big part of your immune system, about 70% of your immune system lives in your gut, right? So if we are not nourishing our body with what it needs, we're also not giving our immune system what it needs. If our immune system doesn't have what it needs, we're also not making all the neurotransmitters in order to be in a good mood. So on a physiological level, it's impacting everything, I would say, right? So whether it's impacting the production of our neurotransmitters to make us feel good, our hormones in order for us to uh, function otherwise, I would say loneliness is a factor there. And, And this is where looking outside of the actual structural element, there is something on a deeper level going on there. When we think of depression, we think like, you know, our mood is depressed, but you could actually depress the function of your cells from doing what they need. Yeah. So I would say it impacts it, it impacts our immune system, it impacts our hormonal system, 
our nervous system absolutely is impacted. Yeah, totally. And going on with that sort of depression, if we talk about and the gut health, like we've got low neurotransmitters and, you know, we're talking dopamine, serotonin. I think one of the things with Western medicine is it has cultured us all to think of in isolation. And so if you've got depression and you've got these dopamine, serotonin downregulated, it's just that. It doesn't affect anything else. But in the body, there's the, the hormone hierarchy, right? And so if you've got a downregulation of a hormone somewhere in the hierarchy, it's then got a flow-on effect to the way that it'll affect your sex hormones, mm-hmm. you know, and the way that you react with cortisol and adrenaline and, and all of these other things. And so, to, and, and then if your eating behavior is affected, you're also not consuming the right things to actually structurally build these molecules in your body at all. And so it's like just this downward spiral and you're just addressing you know, the one thing in isolation, but it's actually got all of these other impacts on the body. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook, And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah, so that's a great point to bring up, Maddie. So, and I think about nowadays that people like five-year-olds are getting diagnosed with anxiety, right? So what, what are people given? They're given SSRIs. What is the purpose of an SSRI? It is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Yeah. So it's asking serotonin to circulate longer in the body. If you are not making serotonin, how could you possibly circulate it, right? So serotonin, 90% of that's made in your gut. Yeah. If your gut is not making it because it's been damaged from a diet full of processed foods, sugary foods, chemical-laden foods, we're not fixing the problem up here. You know, we got to fix the problem a little bit lower down. And this is why we are not seeing progression in mental health, because we have to look at the body as an interconnected state, not in siloed organs. Yeah, totally. When you say like fixing it sort of in the gut, what needs to be repaired? Like what's missing? What needs to be added in there? What needs to be removed? What damage is happening? So when I'm looking at individuals, I see a number of things and and everybody is going to be different. So the five factors I'm looking at 
is the first one I'm looking at is digestion or maldigestion, meaning maybe you are eating the best diet in the world, but your body does not have the ability to break down the nutrients. And the reason you want the nutrients broken down is because they get remade up into hormones, neurotransmitters, vitamins, minerals, all these things, right? So number one would be maldigestion. The number two item that I'm looking at is inflammation in their gut. Now, there can be different types of inflammation. Some individuals can have a excess of, let's say, EPX, protein X, right? So this is more of a allergic type inflammatory process. Some people can have damage to the actual um, mucosal lining and the enterocytes or your um, gut lining cells um, throughout your GI tract have been damaged. And now IgA, which is the antibody that's found in the gut, is we just have too much IgA, right? So that's a different type of inflammation. Other people can have more of a in the autoimmune spectrum where they have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, right? So different types of inflammation are possible. And so that's why we don't treat or address all with one. I always say let's test, not guess when we're, we're working on the body. The third factor I want to look at is, do you have a pathogenic organism? Meaning, do you have a gut bacteria, a parasite, a yeast, something that does not belong in the body that is preventing your body from doing what it should be doing naturally? And then who knows, maybe you picked it up walking barefoot in, you know, some nice lake or something like that. Or maybe you picked it up from consuming raw seafood. We don't know right? So we don't know until we test. So we want to look at that as a third factor. Fourth factor is looking at your metabolite products, right? So your breakdown products in your gut. Most people are familiar with prebiotic rich food and probiotic rich food, but they're not familiar with postbiotics, which are the metabolite products that your bacteria will make for you. Yeah. Right. And then the fifth one, which I think more people are getting familiar with this terminology is the term dysbiosis, which is an imbalance in your your gut microbiome. Now, I want you to, if you aren't already good friends with your gut microbiome, make them your new BFFs. That's what I basically <laughs> say, right? You want to be BFFs with your gut microbiome. You want the good guys. You don't want the bad guys. And this can be anywhere from bacterial uh, dysbiosis. It could be a yeast dysbiosis. But we want to make sure we have the guys that are going to keep us healthy. And we don't want the ones that are going to contribute to creating cancer, creating other diseases, those kinds of things. And those are the things that I'm testing in individuals. And I am finding that everyone is all over the spectrum. And this is why just simply taking a probiotic is not going to work for everybody. You know, that's not necessarily the solution for everybody. For some, it does. But really looking at the whole spectrum of what is influencing your gut health. And because at the end of the day, your gut health can include your neurological health from Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ADHD, autism, right? It can influence your cardiovascular health from atherosclerosis, CHF. It can influence, let's see what other parts of the body, respiratory, so things like asthma, COPD, autoimmune diseases, and then, of course, the metabolic diseases, obesity, and cancer. So almost every organ in the body is influenced by what is in the gut, which is influenced by how you fuel your body. 
Which is why I guess it's no surprise that the Western diet is so catastrophic and we're seeing such a you know huge proliferation in all of these disease types. And I think I'm pretty sure that we're at a place where everybody just expects to get a disease. Like I'm pretty sure if you make it to 50, you're just waiting for your diagnosis. It's like, I wonder what I'll get. Will I get diabetes? Will I have to have surgery? Will I get cancer? Like it's, it's just an expectation in this generation of people. It is catastrophic. I love that word. But is this the right expectation to have? And I'm going to say no. No, definitely not. I will tell you that it is a lot harder to live with your life once you are sick than it is to prevent. And prevention has been thrown out to the door. But when I work with my clients, all of them say, well, how come I wasn't told this before? How come nobody told me this? You know, and I'm like, Would you have really listened? Because we live in a life where we just want to, you know, eat what we want, do what we want. And we think we're invincible until we get something. Yeah. But I I can tell you when I've gone to like my high school reunions, I'm still looking 20 years younger than my colleagues who do are on not just one, two, but maybe three medications for their chronic diseases. Yeah. And if there ever was a goal to have in life, you know, forget about professional goals. I know you think I like to study, but it's not liking to study. I really just like to be healthy so I can function. (laughs) The goal is really not to be on any medications and to be able to wake up and be able to think and move your body without pain. Oh, totally. The goal should always be to die peacefully in your sleep at a very old age, not wait until I get to middle age get a disease and slowly die for 30 years. Yes. Oh, the slow death. How painful is that? Yeah, I'm I'm not planning on that one. (laughs) You and I both. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's it's interesting too, I was was speaking to somebody the other day about this, is that, and it's probably the same for you, very much socially surrounded by lots of healthy, well people, because that's what we do. That's our profession. So a lot of our friends are in the same kind of world of this mixture of modalities and holistic health. and. I can quite confidently say that when I go and hang out with that group of people, everybody looks at least five to 15 years younger than if you go into a group of people all the same age, irrelevant of the age, even if they're in their 20s or their 70s, and you sort of, you know, the the average Australian or the, you know, average American, and the age appearance of their skin, of their body, of their energy is blatantly obvious. Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that because you just reminded me of this event I was at last year. And I'm curious to see how it's going to play out this year. But I was on a vegan cruise last year. I was doing a book signing. And um, so 4,000 people on a ship, 2,000 of which were um, plant-based or at least trying to be more plant forward. And the other 2,000 not, right? And you could see from afar without going to the, you know, the food line or anything, who was plant-based and or at least trying to eat more plants than somebody who was going and getting the pizzas and the burgers and all this stuff. Exactly what you said. The age difference was apparent, you know, the actual failure in the way their body looked and functioned, you know, between having to use walkers and canes or even, um, you know, another thing that's uh, become very common is, um, the little electrical carts people are are going around in, you know, because they can't walk anymore, you know, and and this has become so normal that at airport now you might see five to 10 wheelchairs lined up because you can't even walk from the beginning of the airport to your gate. Yeah. The cost of convenience, hey? 
That's sad. That's really sad. Yeah, it's so sad. That that we, we live in a world where we actually have access to so much technology and so many tools that we're not utilizing them in the right way. Yeah, I totally agree. Sad is the right word because nobody wants to feel incapacitated or unable to have agency over their own body. Yeah. And, and I think that's the key message here is that you don't have to wait to get a disease. Yeah. You, like the power really is within your hands. And if your current doctor doesn't know how to help you, find another doctor. If, yes. if your current doctor is a drug dealer... And it doesn't, doesn't give you more than that. I, I would recommend adding your fruit and veggie dealer on with them and seeing how much farther you get. Yeah. So uh, what interested me before is that something you mentioned, which I think is not common knowledge, but you mentioned in the gut, the metabolites that come out as a result of the food that you eat. And I think this is really interesting because a lot of people think about the food nutrition that you put into the body is, is what you've got to work with, but the bacteria that ferments the food that you put into the gut and that digests the food that you put into the gut, they have their own byproducts and, and factors that come out of them that the body needs. And, and something that might be interesting for the audience is that B vitamins are called B vitamins because they come from bacteria, because they come out of the bacteria in your gut. They don't come necessarily from the food itself. It's the way that the bacteria engages with the food and then produces its byproducts, which is then available to the body. And if you've got a B vitamin deficiency, it might have nothing to do with the diet and everything to do with the colonies in your gut. So I'm curious about the metabolites that you're referring to. Like, What's missing? Is it the colonies in the gut? Is it the things going into the body? Is it both? Um, and how do those metabolites then affect the body and the health and state of cells? Yeah, so the post-metabolites that I was referring to are things called short-chain fatty acids. Okay, so short chain fatty acids, an example of them would be butyrate. Now, propionate and acetate is, is another two. So we have these three short chain fatty acids that our body needs in order to create the processes. Now, because they're postbiotics, the best thing is to get your bacteria to make them. So we got to take a few steps backwards and go, well, how do we get our bacteria to make them? One, you need the right bacteria to make them. How do you get the right bacteria? You eat a very biodiverse diet, okay? And, you know, forget about if you are plant-based, meat-based, whatever based you are. We don't, we don't even need to go into logistics of that. Mm -hmm. I, I want you to focus on eating real food, first of all, right? Not processed food. So none of the processed fried food things out of boxes that we don't have names for that things that are labeled and we can't even identify what they are things with additives artificial colorings like you know like i said like the the candies here actually all the cereals and that kind of stuff so many different red number five blue whatever i you know too many additives to, to name yeah right so Start there. That's going to be the easiest thing. Take those out and just start with the real foods. The second thing is that bio biodiversity, right? So if you are eating the same breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week for 25, 30 years, you can imagine that you don't have a very biodiverse diet. And if you don't have a biodiverse diet, you probably don't have a biodiverse microbiome. And so easiest thing, think of the colors of the rainbow, right? We want to go as easy as possible. So every time I put a plate together, I'm always trying to top like, all right, how can I get eight 
different colors in here, nine different colors of veggies and, you know, really being as diverse as possible with that color of the rainbow and also knowing that each color represents different phytonutrients. What are phytonutrients? Phytonutrients are plant-based ingredients that fight disease, basically. And there are so many different types, you know, from carotenoids in our orange foods to flavonoids to isoflavones to numerous different things that are necessary for our body. So if you are, once again, still not eating a diverse diet, you're not going to be able to do that, right? So we want to eat those prebiotic-rich foods, which prebiotic-rich foods can be things like almonds, leeks, apples, asparagus, to the probiotic. So prebiotic to the probiotic. So we can think of probiotic-rich foods as anything fermented. So things like sauerkraut, kimchi, and that will all help make those postbiotics. Now, the interesting thing is, if you look at different cultures from around the world, a lot of them have a probiotic-rich food. Yeah. It was so hard for me to find a probiotic-rich food in American culture, in American food. And the one I found, if it's made healthy, would actually be good. But the way it's made, it's not good. You want to know which one that I found, Maddie? Yeah, I've got a few running through my mind, but hit me. I'm curious what, what you think, what, what you think is the, the American uh, probiotic rich food. Well, the one that's coming to mind is either pickles or gherkins on burgers. Okay. Oh, that, well, that's a good one. That's not actually a bad one. So I'm in the South here in the US and a very popular food here is collard greens. Okay. And collard greens can be really good. Like it's rich in fiber, you can, uh, you know, but what happens is it's made with bacon and other kind of not so healthy ingredients. You know, bacon, if somebody needs a reminder, is a class one carcinogen or cancer causing processed meat. So that was pretty interesting to me because if you think about like those other cultures, right? So pickles is, is probably pretty universal. But in Korea, we might think of kimchi, which is a fermented cabbage. In Germany, we have sauerkraut. Once again, another fermented cabbage, right? Both of which are great sources of probiotics, rich in fiber, so helping digestion. Then another one, which has become actually quite popular here in the U.S., not based in the U.S., is kombucha. Mm. which is uh, something that I often recommend as a drink for people who are just have that really bad habit of having a glass of wine at night. I'm like, why don't you just pour some kombucha in your, your wine glass and at least it'll be yeah. better for your gut health, right? But the interesting thing about kombucha is where it originated from, which is like Northern China, the Russia area of, of making it. It's a fermented tea, right? Yeah. And then miso soup is another one that vegan crews that I was telling you about, they serve miso soup for breakfast every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's genius because now you're starting your day already with some fermented food. And ideally, I would want you to have fermented food with all three of your meals. If you're eating three meals a day, most people are getting fermented food maybe once every couple of days because they've had some yogurt or something like that. Yeah. But really, I think we need to optimize that. So yogurt is another one, that or kefir, or fermented yogurt drink. And then any of your pickled vegetables, right? So you can have things like uh, there's a dish called Campari, something like that in Japan, which is fermented burdock, mm. high in fiber, right? So I think when we look at these other cultures, 
and see what they're doing. I mean, even in Ethiopia, the uh, the bread that they use, the injera, that's that's a fermented type of flatbread that they use to roll up their uh, veggies with. So really looking at these cultures as, all right, what are these different foods? Because we can have more diversity. I mean, I love food. I, I, I don't believe in dieting. I'm like, there's so much good food out there to eat. <laughs> we just need to really experience it in a way that we redevelop our relationship with food and, and understand that it's there really not only to nourish our body, but we are feeding it to our gut microbiome. Yeah. So our gut microbiome can do what it needs to do for the rest of the body. Totally. I love all of the probiotic suggestions because, yeah, I agree. That's something that I'm really big on with my clients is beginning that process of yeah introducing all of these different bacterial species. And I think, I don't know if you feel the same, but I think that a fermented food is far superior to a probiotic supplement because you're actually dealing with one, a living organism. It hasn't been snap frozen or dry frozen or whatever it is to be able to put it into the, you know, the capsule to sit on the shelf for an unknown amount of time. And the other thing is that I think the advertising on probiotics is a little misleading because often the packaging will say 10 billion bacterial species. And actually it's about five to maybe 30 species if you're really lucky. And it's just billions of copies of those. Whereas if you get you know, a sauerkraut or a kimchi or something like that. Ideally, you're looking at one to two or 300 different species that are symbiotically already living together, you know, in a living culture. And you know that that's the case because you take the lid off it and it often pops, the lid pops mm -hmm. and it's like there's gas bubbles that come out of it. And it's like, whoa, this is actually, it's alive. <laughs> yeah, that is a great point. And I do use supplements in my practice, but I, I want people to realize food first, mm. food always first, and oh, then sure. supplements where needed. And think of it like this, like, let, let's use an analogy here, right? That might resonate with a lot of people. When you go shopping, it's almost holiday time uh, for a Christmas tree, all right? You're, you're going to go out and you're going to find the freshest, plumpest, greenest, the, the one that smells the nicest Christmas tree, because why? That's what's going to help hang your decorations even nicer, right? So think of your body like the Christmas tree in order for your supplements to really work and kind of help. They're only going to work if that foundation of that tree of your body is good. They can't replace that. You can't fill in the supplements to replace that foundation. So keep that in mind when you are taking more supplements than you are eating food. Yeah. And, and I share your opinion there of, you know, like sometimes we need probiotic supplements. Sometimes we need medication. Like they're all tools in the arsenal to use at the appropriate time. But as soon as we put all of our eggs in one basket with a pill, then we're probably not going down the most optimal path. Yeah, 100%. And then there's one more drink I want to give you because this this one I just recently had. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with this one, but I, I just returned from Mexico and there is a fermented drink there that's made from uh, the rind of pineapples. It's called a tapache. Yep, I've had it before. And I was like, oh, have you had that? Yeah, when I was in Mexico, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I never had it before. I'm like, I've come to Mexico so many times and nobody gave me tapache. So now I know to like ask for that all the time. But yeah, that was really good. Oh, you've made me nostalgic about being in Mexico. I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> Next year, my retreat, 2024. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, amazing. I'll be there. <laughs> Guest appearance. <laughs> 
Um, so I guess on that note, where can everybody find you online and where can they get more about gut health and all of the amazing things? I know that I've been looking through your blog in the last few days and there's heaps of really cool stuff there. So where can everybody find more of you? Yeah, absolutely. So on my website, so my website is drbenote.com. And on my website, I have a free cookbook for you if you want to download that. It's the Cell Care Plate, which is 20 plant-based gluten-free recipes, all cooked and prepared by non-plant-based eaters. And they love them. So these are like the winners. The most favorite is the Gut Healthy Chocolate Chip Cookie. So I definitely want you to go check that out. And then on social media, I'm on all platforms at Dr. Benote. So YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Dr. Dr. Benote. Fantastic. I will pop all of those links down in the show notes below. So if you have been listening and think you want to get more of Manisha, then scroll down, click the link and jump into her world. I recommend it. And before we finish today, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Yeah, so I'm going to give you my motto here. So one piece of information I wish more people knew about is I use the hashtag, hashtag cell care is self care. And I really want you to start taking care of your cellular health because that in the long run is going to take you wherever you want to go. So really take a look at how angry your cells are and let's try and make them happier with the ingredients that they need based off a lifestyle. Amazing. Cell care is self-care. I love it. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate your time and we'll catch up with you really soon. Thank you so much for having me, Maddie. No worries. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode or learnt anything at all, the gift of your five-star rating would be incredibly helpful. And what's even more powerful is if you write a review. You can do it below each episode on Spotify every time an episode comes out. And inside Apple Podcast, simply find the main page of this show with all the episodes on it, scroll to the bottom, hit write a review, share your amazing feedback, and then hit send. It helps this show grow tremendously and allows me to successfully invite bigger and more famous guests each time we do the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for helping us climb the charts, climb the algorithm and help more people. Oh, and by the way, I have a short disclaimer as well. I just wanted to quickly remind you that the information provided on this podcast is for general informational purposes only. While we strive to bring you accurate and up-to-date content, it's important to note that a lot of this is mixed with opinions, stories, and ideas not supported by mainstream science or medicine. Any advice or suggestions should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult a healthcare provider before making any decisions about the health and wellness of you and your family. Remember too that what works for one person may not work for another. And just as we promote on the show, each person is responsible for their own health decisions. Thank you for tuning in to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. And now, the next episode. Here it is. Here it is.